We all believe we'd run into the burning building. But until we feel that heat, we can never know. You do. You chose to die instead of giving up your colleagues. That test you passed? Not everybody does. Welcome to the afterlife. To do what I do, I need some idea of the threat we face. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War III. Nuclear holocaust? No. Something worse. All I have for you is a word. Tell it. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. Start looking at the world in a new way. Don't try to understand it. Feel it. It'll happen here. Hasn't happened yet. Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. He's a big movies think about big men in tights. You should have got us. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? We like movies! Hello, everybody. Welcome to We Like Movies, a semi-monthly movie-positive pop culture cross-section where we cover everything from deep-dive historical retrospectives to contemporary cinematic concerns, as well as everything in between. Today, I will be your host, your solo host, Matt Knudsen. I am uh, doing the rare solo pod today. Mostly just wanted to hop on here by myself, see if I could deliver sort of like an academic paper in the form of a bit of a lecture, as I am, uh, you know, not only an aspiring Filmmaker. I'm also an aspiring historian, an aspiring critical studies academic. I want to be lecturing more often, and I thought this would be a good opportunity to flex those muscles a little bit. I'm going to try my best to keep it from becoming too dry. If you're willing to bear with me, hopefully I can make it somewhat interesting. You're probably familiar with our oeuvre series. We obviously do deep dives into the entire filmographies of uh, filmmakers. Thus far, we have covered Steven Spielberg, and we covered John Mc. 
Tiernan, and here we are starting off covering the career of one Christopher Nolan. Now, I know what you're thinking, yawn, Christopher Nolan, haven't we talked about him enough? Isn't it so dreadfully obvious for a 30-something heterosexual white dude uh, who grew up in the suburbs of the Pacific Northwest to be uh, so obsessed with Christopher Nolan so as to want to not only engage in academic study on the man, but to uh, engage in an indulgent four or five part series on his filmography. Can't we come up with something a little less obvious? Well, I hear you. You are heard. I get it. He is not the most revolutionary idea in the world. He His work has been very well covered, not the least of which excellent series on one of my favorite podcasts, the Blank Check Podcast. They covered him a couple years back, pretty early in their run, and they covered each film indiv- of his individually, and at that point it was up through, it was all of them, it was up through Dunkirk, it was right right after Dunkirk came out. Yeah, they covered each film individually. They had a bunch of great guests. They went pretty deep on everything and they pretty much covered all of this ground and a lot of discussion about his films, a lot of the kind of toxic so-called Nolan bro stuff, which I think turns a lot of people off, stems from looking at his stuff qualitatively. And is he overrated? Is he too uh, often killing off wives? Is he is his stuff too often too somber? I mean, you know, there, there's been plenty of discourse about the quality of the films, and I'm personally on the side of the fence where he hasn't made a single film that I haven't liked. I, 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 I hear the people for whom his stuff doesn't work or whom perhaps they, you know, preferred the earlier stuff and and became less interested post-inception, perhaps. Discourse about the man certainly runs the gamut. But you can't deny the fact that his stuff has been resoundingly financially successful and also resoundingly critically successful. He's he's received Oscar nominations. He's made multiple films that have made over a billion dollars. He's been a company man at Warner Brothers since his third film. He is an unqualified and sort of unprecedented 21st century success story. And I'm interested in exploring his filmography from a academic slant. For a certain portion of the audience, perhaps that sounds dry or boring, and Oscar and I will obviously endeavor to keep it from becoming so. But I didn't want this to just become Oscar and I relitigating all the reasons why I think Interstellar is brilliant and all the reasons why he thinks it's completely preposterous. That's that's been done when we were, you know, discussing these films contemporaneous with their releases. I wanted to embrace this opportunity for my academic interest particularly as they pertain to Nolan, to dovetail with the fact that he has a film slated to come out in movie theaters. Remember movie theaters? To come out in movie theaters on July 17th of this year. That's his weekend. That's when The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises and Dunkirk were released. Um, He's been very successful on that weekend, and so it would stand to reason he'd be successful again with the $200 million uh, science fiction exercise that has big movie stars in it. But what's particularly significant about Tenet in terms of today's climate is that it is pretty much the only movie slated to come out, you know, with the exception of maybe Russell Crowe's Unhinged and uh, Disney's Mulan, which technically do have release dates now. But for all intents and purposes, Tenet is the film that we've been discussing over the co- over the course of the last couple weeks as the, as the film upon whose shoulders the fate of theatrical exhibition now rests given our COVID-19 climate. And a lot of speculation has been leveled as to whether or not it will still hit that release date and whether the film can quote-unquote save the cinema. Now, 
now I'd say there's a 50-50 chance that it ends up getting pushed. We'll just have to cross that bridge when we come to it. But at the moment, functioning under the expectation that the film will hit its release date, then we decided we were going to structure our latest oeuvre series leading up to the release of Tenet with the hopes to explore that film in terms of how it relates to his thematic interests in some of his late period films, most explicitly films like Inception and Interstellar. Now, obviously, we haven't seen the movie yet. Nolan plays it very close to the vest, to use one of his favorite terms, when it comes to uh, plot specifics prior to these films coming out. So maybe Tenet will come out and it will have absolutely nothing to do with Inception. And we'll cross that bridge when we come to it as well. But for the time being, considering the sorts of themes he's been exploring, considering the kinds of uh, narrative constructions he's been interested in for the last few films, and just considering the look of the trailer, to be perfectly honest, I thought, all right, great, let's pair that with some of his recent stuff and let's look at some of the thematic recurrences in his films and and try and try and take the conversation in a I, I think a new and more interesting direction that's less qualitative and more about critical theory again it's not everybody's cup of tea but it's been something that I've been quite dedicated to over the course of the last three or four years of my career I spent a couple years at Columbia University's graduate program in the film and media studies department studying under some truly brilliant academic minds not least of which would be uh, professor Jane Gaines uh, professor Ron Gregg and the late professor Thomas Elsesser, who was something of a mentor figure to me over the course of the last years. I'm sorry to say he passed away in December of last year. The last trip I went on before this whole lockdown locked down uh, was I actually traveled back to New York in early March to attend a memorial service for Professor Elsesser and uh, got to hear from many of his just brilliant colleagues who gave some incredibly heartfelt speeches about the man and just reinforced for me how incredibly important and influential his work was on me choosing to sort of dedicate myself and double down on the academic side of my interests. When I was at Columbia, a very short program, only about 18 months uh, for a master's degree. And while there, I was floundering, not not floundering um, in terms of grades or anything like that. I was floundering in terms of what I wanted to dedicate my thesis project to. Like I came, I come from a production background. I've always been much more production minded. The faculty there was trying to help me uh, hone my writing skills, hone my lecturing skills, hone my just critical studies brain so that I could um, at least moonlight as an academic and put together the kind of thesis project where I could get something out of it, grow as a potential lecturer and teacher. And I couldn't find it. I was throwing out things like, ah, should I do a, a critical history of the James Bond franchise? That's been done. That's it's And it's not very deep. Am I going to talk about super continuity and you know franchise films like the MCU and where we're going nah, to, that's been done. You know, try and go a little deeper. Try and see what else is out there for you to explore. Like, dig a little deeper, find a new lane, maybe find a new muscle. And it was really three things. It was learning about cinemetrics and the idea of the average shot length. Uh, if you're not familiar with cinemetrics, it is this um, software that was written by a professor named uh, Yuri Sivian. He's a uh, William Colvin professor of art history, cinema, and media studies. And he wrote a program that allows you to plug a film into a calculator. And then as you watch the film, 
you click your mouse every time there is a cut. And as a result, it will basically write an average shot length spreadsheet for you. As a result, you can plug the average shot length of any given film after you've gone through and broken it all down into this online database. And then academics can use it to refer back to it. It's very interesting to look at different genres, different eras. And once I caught word of the whole Cinemetrics thing, I started looking at the kinds of films that I wanted to start breaking down to the molecular level. And I realized that I was just sort of unconsciously sitting in front of my computer and building spreadsheets and breaking down films like Dunkirk or Memento, figuring out how Nolan was organizing his narrative, reordering them, restructuring them. And, and as a result, I started realizing that what I was so fascinated by when it came to a filmmaker like Nolan was his approach to narrative. And that got my wheels turning. The second thing was uh, getting to screen Christian Markley's incredible film, The Clock, when I was in, in London a couple years back. And if you're not familiar with The Clock, past and future guest of our podcast, Ben Goff, talked about it on our uh, top 10s of the 2010s episode. It is literally a cinematic clock. It's a 24-hour long film, and every every scene, if you will, every shot of this 24-hour long film refers to the time of day when you're watching it. In other words, if you were to properly start the film at midnight and run it for 24 hours, what is going on in the film, and it's just a collection of, of shots and sequences from film and television from, you know, 100 years of, of cinema and television history, and every minute of the film, it's there's, there's there's a reference to the time of day that you're watching it on screen. The best example being at 12 midnight or 11:59, uh, the scene of the face of Big Ben exploding from V for Vendetta signals uh, the stroke of midnight in the film. Or there's a moment when uh, Samuel Samuel Jackson is running through a subway station and Die Hard with a Vengeance, and he looks up and sees, and the clock says, I don't know, 10:23 in the morning. And then you look down at your phone, and you're like, Yep, it's 10:23 in the morning. It is a staggering work of art. Uh, I have not sat through all of it. You you can't get a hold of it, you have to watch it in a museum. I got to see it at the Tate Modern in, in London, and that's how you have to see it nowadays, unless you you know have a relationship with Christian Markley. So I, I got an opportunity to see that, and that was a game changer as well, because I was like, oh, temporality. Yes, of course. That's what I'm interested in. Temporality, and particularly Nolan's relationship to, and even fear of temporality. And then the final eureka moment came for me when I was uh, fortunate enough to get to take slash be the teaching assistant for Professor Elsesser's class at Columbia, where I met him. And the class was called The Moving image and the mind game film. Time, travel, trauma, and tales with a twist. I'm going to just briefly read you the class breakdown from his syllabus. Since the mid-1990s, independent cinema, Hollywood, but also films from other parts of the world, notably Asia and Latin America, have shown a remarkable predilection for narratives that are achronological, multi-directional, multi-character, spatial, and in other ways deviate from classical story constructions. Less plot-driven, such films display attenuated or differently articulated forms of causality ambiguous or aberrant character motivation with non-linear and reversible temporalities, as well as surprise twists and cognitive dissonance and ontological switches. Stories tend to focus on protagonists either with mental conditions, extreme affective states, or physical disabilities, obliging the viewer to see the world from a radically different perspective. Also, relevant to the topic are films that feature a large cast of characters interacting or intersecting with each other, whether in a single film or in longer-running high-production value television series. These new global genres or subgenres have been variously laid 
labeled mind game films, puzzle films, network narratives, multi-character narratives, modular narratives, forking path films, transmedia narratives, and hyperlink movies. The course discusses these differences and distinctions, investigates the reasons for the emergence of such symptomatic phenomena, and examines the philosophical implications of what may constitute a change of default values, not only in contemporary storytelling, in cinema, or televisual form. Now, this was a real turning point for me. It's one of the greatest classes I've ever taken. Learning from and working with Elsesser uh, was was a game changer for me uh, as an academic. Those three subjects, learning about cine- cinemetrics, becoming obsessed with Christian Marclay's The Clock, and then getting introduced to Elsesser's idea of the mind game film. Something just clicked. I was like, oh, yes, of course. Let's take all these things and let's analyze Nolan's obsession with experimental narrative and his obsession with fractured or what I started referring to in my articles as the the post-temporal or the hyper-temporal. I started outlining what would eventually become my, my thesis project at Columbia, which I titled Hyper-Temporality and Post-Linear Cinema, colon, The Function of Fractured Timelines in the 21st Century Cinematic Narrative. The idea being that the ascendancy of these so-called mind game or puzzle films started to pop up in the late 90s or the early 2000s, and not coincidentally, Nolan starts making films in the late 90s. You get following in 98, you get Memento in 2000, well, 2001 in the States, I suppose. And then he's pretty much off to the races. And, you know, he's made, uh, Tenet will be his 11th film in 20 years. To me, I feel like he's just continued to experiment to the point where I find Dunkirk to really be his most temporally experimental film, which is saying a lot considering that it was a big hit mainstream war movie that was nominated for Best Picture. But it's also one of just the weirdest and twistiest films of the 21st century. I have always found his most narratively successful and just flat out entertaining film to be Inception. I chose to structure my thesis around Inception as kind of like the centerpiece text for study, but then also dedicate chapters to Memento and Dunkirk as well. Those three really, Dunkirk, Memento, Inception, to me, those are the most instructive texts when it comes to narrative experimentation in Nolan's oeuvre. And so I decided to do a a thesis project, a research project on narratology that used those three films as the subjects for deep dive case study. And I thought that this would be a good opportunity to kind of give you just sort of like a little bit of a Cliff's Notes outline of what that project entailed and why why this particular subject matter gets me so activated. I'm interested in the way he continues to push the narrative form the further he gets into his career. And in addition to championing celluloid and IMAX capture particularly, which are two things that I'm quite interested in and quite passionate about my Self, and it appears to me that Tenet is going to be another great example of that. As his 11th film in 20 years, I thought it would make for a great capper. I mean, maybe maybe we'll be in the you know the same situation we were in a couple years ago when we did our whole James Bond breakdown, and we ended up with Spectre. And Spectre was supposed to be the one, right? It was what everything was leading to. It was coming off of Skyfall. It was everything pointed to Spectre, and ended up being a, a real lesser entry into the Bond franchise. And without jinxing anything, maybe Tenet won't necessarily be peak Nolan. But at this point, everything suggests that it could be. So if you'll indulge me, I will work my way through what I think are the bullet points of this particular research project. Now, I will obviously endeavor to make sure that I specifically call out quotes from the various people who are cited throughout this project, lest I be accused of taking credit for their theories. So I'll I'll make it very, very clear when I'm quoting. When I'm not quoting, this is coming directly from the text of my essay, Hypertemporary and post-linear cinema. 
and hopefully it'll give you a better idea about why I am so deeply, deeply fascinated and activated by this man's filmography. Let's start with a quote from the great Peter Brooks from his 1984 work, Reading for the Plot, Design and Intention in Narrative. Brooks writes, quote, Plot as I conceive it is the design and the intention of narrative, which shapes a story and gives it a certain direction or intent of meaning. We might think of plot as the logic or perhaps the syntax of a certain kind of discourse, one that develops its propositions only through temporal sequence and progression. Narrative is one of the large categories or systems of understanding that we use in our negotiations with reality, specifically in the case of narrative with the problem of temporality. Man's time-boundedness, his consciousness of existence within the limits of mortality, and plot is the principal ordering force of those meanings that we try to wrest from human temporality. Plots are not simply organizing structures, they are also intentional structures, goal-oriented and forward-moving. Plot as we need and want the term is hence an embracing concept for the design and intention of the narrative, a structure for those meanings that are developed through temporal succession, a structuring operation elicited by and made necessary by those meanings that develop through succession in time." Unquote. So Peter Brooks is writing on the subject of narrative in a literary context, but the fundamentals of his philosophy are relevant to a discourse on cinema as well. What could be interpreted as the defining characteristic of narrative in the structural sense is story's relationship with temporality. Time can obviously not be controlled in real life, so it's of no surprise that storytellers have been attempting to reconcile it in a cinematic context for over a century. On the subject of time, Brooks continues, quote, Narratology has in practice been too exclusively concerned with the identification of minimal narrative units and paradigmatic structures. It has too much neglected the temporal dynamics that shape narratives in our reading of them, the play of desire and time that make us turn the pages and strive toward narrative ends." Unquote. What we are concerned with here in this research project is narrative intentionality, specifically that which attempts to make sense of the phenomenologically temporal through post-classical story structure. Now, it would be irresponsible of me to attempt an academic query into the building blocks of narrative construction without acknowledging the Russian formalist work of Vladimir Propp and Viktor Shklovsky. They applied their analytic curiosity to the makeup of folktales before applying their theories to an Aristotelian overview of storytelling. They coined the terms fabula and sujet, which in a somewhat reductive English translation could be defined as story and plot, respectively. If fabula is the what, then sujet is the how. These narratological distinctions are particularly significant when applied to the cinema as it is a medium in which the deliberate organization of the individual elements is crucial to its effectiveness. A film is comprised of acts. Acts are made up of sequences. Sequences contain scenes. Scenes are a series of beats. Each beat is the product of a moment. Individual elements can be reordered, revisited, or recontextualized wherever the filmmaker sees fit to insert it into the cinematic superstructure. Jean-Luc Godard's infamous comment about plot may be disproportionately celebrated relative to the filmmaker's penchant for irony, but his point is still well taken. Quote, a story should have a beginning, a middle, and an end, but not necessarily in that order. Unquote. A filmmaker's greatest power is their ability to fundamentally redefine the idea of time in the service of a dramatic goal. In an ideal scenario, plot trajectory is, or at least should be, a reflection of story necessity. The mirror used for said reflection may be inverted, tinted, or even shattered, but the relationship remains the same. If we take for granted the fact that the filmmaker approaches plot as a means to appropriately serve a story, then the exercise of plotting becomes the activity pertinent to this narratology analysis. Indeed, Christopher Nolan's deliberately titled film Inception from 2010 literalizes the practice of psychological manipulation. A group of thieves concoct a nefarious scheme to implant the germ of an idea in the psyche of a mark, which will grow into an ideology that will define the man's future. No 
Nolan is not coy about his artistic goals in this context. He's crafting a pulpy heist film about dream thieves with one hand, while making a postmodern statement about cinema's ability to realign perspective with the other. It's no wonder that Nolan's sensibilities tend to favor con artists, magicians, and the mentally unstable. Duplicity is Nolan's stock and trade. Temporality has become his obsession. The great Spanish filmmaker Luis Buñuel, speaking on the subject of film as a, quote, instrument of poetry, opines, quote, the cinema is a marvelous and dangerous weapon if a free spirit wields it. It's the finest instrument there is for expressing the world of dreams, of the emotions, of instinct. Because of the way it works, the mechanism for producing film images is, of all the means of human expression, the one that is most like the mind of man, or better still, the one which best imitates the functioning of the mind while dreaming. J.B. Brunius draws our attention to the fact that the darkness that gradually invades the auditorium is the same as closing the eyes. Next, on the screen and within man, the darkness of unconsciousness begins to make inroads. As in the dream, the images appear and disappear by means of dissolves or fade-ins and out. Time and space become flexible, contract and stretch at will. Chronological order and relative values of duration no longer correspond to reality. Cyclical action may elapse in a few minutes or in several centuries. The movement speeds up, the time lags." Bunuel's feelings on the seventh art's definitive, almost spiritual properties becomes a Rosetta Stone for the divination of what cinema is truly capable of, namely the ability to most closely approximate, represent, or even improve upon the subjectively experiential. Bunuel makes multiple references to the idea of the, quote, hypnagogic inhibition, unquote, later on in this same speech, by which he means that liminal realm between relative consciousness and proper dream state. He argues that cinema cuts to the heart of that transient period in which we are not only supremely vulnerable to suggestion, but also capable of experiencing a hallucinatory reality without becoming frightened or questioning our own sanity. Memory, dreams, and the relativity of time are the three categories most demonstrative of a storytelling vanguard that grew out of the art cinema of the 1960s and has finally taken its place in the mainstream over the last 20 years. Plurality and duality, the so-called nostalgia for the present, as Frederick Jameson would put it, new definitions of continuity, adjustable fluidity of time and space, all phenomenon explored by a post-linear storytelling revolution that has finally come of age and is defined by a relationship between cinema and time we will henceforth refer to as the hypertemporal. In one of Thomas Elsesser's many essays about the subgenre for which he coined the term mind game film, he writes, quote, A productive pathology is a particular skill set that proves to be important, if not crucial to society, yet it does not necessarily lead to personal happiness. It is perhaps the modern form of heroic sacrifice. When there are no more heroes, because, like melodrama and like trauma narratives, films of productive pathologies are essentially about impaired bodies and other forms of limited agency or scope for action. When all avenues are blocked and there is no way forward, a productive pathology may be the resource of last resort." Unquote. Leonard Shelby, the main character of Christopher Nolan's film Memento, is merely a vessel, and the film is a film noir exercise purely out of storytelling necessity. Nolan is interested in investigating memory through a detective narrative, and his goal is to present a translation of this wholly subjective phenomenon as an exercise in analyzing the process by which memories are made, considered, and forgotten. Leonard may not be relatable in the empathetic sense, but his philosophical musings on the ways in which memory, or the lack of it, informs and buttresses our sense of self reflect what Bunuel challenges the cinema to be, namely the internal made external. Memento's highly unconventional sujet has two separate, contrary timelines that each progress in opposite temporal directions. The color portions of the film move backwards chronologically, each brief segment representing the window before Leonard's memory resets, and the black and white portions move forward, following a classical linearity. But the fracture of these segments isn't defined by Leonard's memory necessarily. Instead, the jump usually occurs when he makes a provocative point or happens upon an important clue. The timelines will eventually collide, of course. This is an event that occurs in most of Nolan's
Kahn's narrative experiments. In this case, there is a handshake that is signaled by a Polaroid that transitions from monochrome to color. The development of the Polaroid becomes a motif as Polaroids take time to come into view. They require a temporal change in order for their granular components to coalesce. In this regard, the Polaroid acts as a metaphor for the narrative itself. The impatient viewer may find this process frustrating, but anyone who's ever violently flapped away at a developing Polaroid knows that the motion may be cathartic, but the chemical reaction remains relatively fixed. There's a method to Nolan's development process here, and part of that includes a certain amount of patience and intellectual engagement. Leonard's backstory and the clues that make up his investigation are products of constant uncertainty and reevaluation. Details, reminders, and the facts, quote-unquote, constantly appear as abstract reflections or distorted representations. Some of the piecemealed clues Leonard has tattooed on his body can be viewed upright and forward from his first-person vantage point, but others are illegible unless viewed in a mirror. The character of Natalie, Memento's de facto femme fatale, occasionally positions Leonard in front of a mirror so that they can both read the words. She manipulates his body the way she will manipulate his mind, placing him where she needs him to be in order to be a functional reflection of himself. For Leonard, the ending of Memento is something of a lateral move, emotionally speaking. For us, it's dramatically devastating. But while it couldn't be mistaken for a happy ending, it is legitimately satisfying from an intellectual standpoint. Nolan's commitment to his structure and the discipline exercised in functioning within the narrative parameters he sets for himself during the film's first 30 minutes of quote-unquote narrative conditioning is singular. He's a storyteller who enjoys presenting audiences with unique narrative challenges, providing the deciphering tools they require in order to quote-unquote read his films, then privileging them with the dramatic rewards specific to his individuated temporal constructions. Leonard's trajectory is a tragic one. His malfunctioning memory is attempting to eat him from the inside like a vindictive tumor that delights in torment. It is not pleasurable to watch him in pain, but perhaps the act of observing his story is therapeutic when filtered through an expressionistic narrative prison. It is unlikely that any two people's capacity for ingesting and processing memories are identical, but Memento's enduring ability to challenge, fascinate, and engage such a wide audience of open-minded viewers over the course of the last 20 years speaks to an edifying truth, that in the category of translating an enigmatic concept like memory into a narrative construct that adequately reflects a mental sensation cinematically, perhaps Nolan really did tap into something important, positioned as he was at the fulcrum of a 21st century paradigmatic pivot when he broke into mainstream cinematic consciousness with his film Memento. Inception is perhaps the most thematically successful metaphor ever constructed about the practice of filmmaking. The notion that viewing a film shares many similarities with experiencing a dream is not a provocative suggestion, nor is the theory that Inception's central dream heist is an elaborate metaphor intended to deconstruct the cinematic production process. But if we examine the ways in which Inception's capacity for narrative experimentation enable it to comment on time, dreams, filmmaking, and film viewing, then perhaps we can more clearly define the parameters that allow the film to function as an instructive hypertemporal exercise. On its face, Inception is a film about a team of thieves who use military technology to enter the mind of a conglomerate heir in the hopes of influencing his business strategy. Simple enough. But Nolan is not nearly as interested in simulation interface, dynastic drama, or corporate intrigue as he is in storytelling mechanics. He's particularly interested in the cross-examination of the narrative, spilling the elements of traditional storytelling out onto the table like so many jigsaw pieces, examining the individual shapes, and reassembling them in a manner that comments on the ontological nature of puzzles themselves. Genre filmmaking is Nolan's preferred method of metaphor fabrication, and by the time he made Inception, he had already been successful using film noir to comment on unreliable narrators and superhero stories to examine moral relativism between hero and villain. Using a heist narrative to explicate the filmmaker's ability to manipulate an audience seems like a particularly appropriate vehicle for deconstructing this relationship. The self-fulfilling aesthetic of the dream state and Inception is particularly unique as contrasted with unconscious exercises in other films such as Eight and a Half, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, 
or dreamscape. Nolan's decision to quote-unquote ground his unconscious environments with a foundational verisimilitude was met with controversy when the film was released. After all, how would an audience ever be able to identify dream sequences if they weren't semiotically signposted with dwarves in top hats, dancing cheeseburgers, or expressionistic angles that suggest the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Nolan's stylistic decisions in regard to how he portrays the sound stage of the mind is instructive in terms of how he wants his central metaphor to function. The legitimately surrealistic flourishes Nolan does allow himself still manage to be practical, or at least justifiable, in the context of his construct. For example, when Paris folds on itself, it does so at a perfect right angle. A hallway spins on its axis because the vehicle on the dream level above is executing an identical action. A freight train charges down a city street because the vehicle is a vestige of a memory in the subconscious of someone sharing the dream, etc. He's not making a quote-unquote dreamy film like the deliberately elliptical Last Year at Marion Bad or even Stardust Memories. He's making a film about a group of professionals whose workplace happens to exist within the architecture of the mind. This brings us to the second important point about Nolan's interpretation of the dream state. His characters are at work when they're sharing a dream. They're literally on the clock. In this regard, the film shares similarities to Tarsum Singh's film The Cell, another film about entering someone's mind to extract information. But where the cell is narratively interested in confusing, frightening, and throwing its heroes off balance while adrift in the labyrinth of a psychopath's mind, Inception's crew require a navigatable and relatable world. This point dovetails with the third justification for Nolan's quote-unquote naturalism. The narrative is invested in the fact that the aesthetic border between reality and dream must be so amorphous that the characters and audience are always questioning it. The efficaciousness of the film's infamous final shot relies heavily on this particular tension. Nolan can only legitimately start exploring the technique he's truly interested in, namely the relative dilation of time between the dream layers, if he establishes some concrete rules and grounds the narrative in something like contextual reality. The basis of the production process within the dream state must have parameters, lest it spin off toward the dangerous realm of what Thomas L. Sessa would refer to as quote-unquote voodoo science. Critical theorist Amresh Sinha clarifies this, quote, the dream is ontologically more important to the production process, i.e. means of production, because it reproduces the form-production relation as the very condition of its own being. In other words, no dream can be manufactured if it cannot reproduce the basis of its own means of production, i.e. the unconscious the material basis of its production, unquote. Nolan's dream world is both soundstage and screening room simultaneously. It is the vertically integrated delivery device that fits neatly in a briefcase and expands to fill the real estate of the mind. Inception is crucial to our investigation of the hypertemporal and postlinear as the second half of the film plays out in a coexistence of timelines reacting to different temporal strictures. The levels are transitive to one another, but their individual rates of dilation are unique. Translating temporal relativism to a narrative context is a technique that Nolan would elaborate on in Interstellar and Dunkirk. But he workshops it in Inception, and the final hour is an experiment in how juxtaposition of temporalities evolving at different rates of progression can offer dramatic possibility. For the purposes of this research project, I did a Suzetic breakdown of Inception, beginning at scene 110, one hour, four minutes, and three three seconds into the film, the moment at which the team enters the dream and begin their inception of the character Fisher. I end my breakdown at scene 327, two hours, 17 minutes, and nine seconds into the film. I have decided only to analyze the Suzette of the 73-minute stretch because I believe it is the most narratively experimental section and therefore most pertinent for analysis. I've broken down 217 discrete scenes, scenes 110 through 327, per Nolan's Suzette, identified which dream level they take place on, ordered them in a spreadsheet, and color-coded them for the purposes of graphically tracking the progression of the team downward through the levels as well as Nolan's storytelling logic. 
Moving downward through the levels, 64 scenes take place in Yusuf's rainy city, 56 take place in Arthur's hotel, 55 take place in Eames's mountain fortress, and 27 take place in the so-called limbo, the first seven of which are flashbacks to Cobb's previous experience there. The first third of the 73-minute stretch features the largest block of consistent color, representing the longest sustained time spent on a single dream level. This makes sense as the addition of more levels suggests more opportunities for temporal juxtaposition. But if you refer to the checkerboarding that occurs at scene 176, you'll notice that Nolan sets a precedent in terms of how he will allow his temporalities to interact for the remainder of the film. A cognitive conditioning has has occurred between scenes 110 and 176. Whether we've been aware of it or not, Nolan has been teaching us how he expects us to read his film, shot to shot, for the remainder of the running time. At 98 minutes into the 148-minute film, Nolan finally delivers on the promise of the hypertemporal mousetrap he has been meticulously fabricating for 176 scenes. According to writer Matthew Belinke, quote, we've got every trick in the filmmaker's arsenal memorized. And we roll our eyes at the first sign of cliché. Just as Cobb's team has to literally fight its way through Fisher's mind, Nolan feels he's up against an audience that has built up a resistance to storytelling. The only way to do something original is to do something drastic." Unquote. In the film's most bravura sequence, the events of Yusuf's car chase taking place on level one have a transitive influence on the physics of the fight taking place in Arthur's hallway on level two. Nolan cuts between these temporalities 20 times over the course of the three-minute sequence, and each time he does so, the movement of Yusuf's van, swerving accelerating, skidding, has a ripple effect on the conditions of the hallway in which Arthur is trying to defend himself. When Yusuf loses control of the vehicle and sends it into a barrel roll, he activates the rotating hallway on the subsequent dream level that requires Arthur to leap from floor to wall to ceiling. This is the visual payoff of Nolan's ambitious structural gambit. He has created a scenario in which disparate temporalities are now in direct narrative discourse. But they're not just intellectually commenting on one another in the Eisensteinian sense. They're sparring with one another dancing, expanding and compressing, dilating and constricting, calling and repeating back and forth against the temporal chasm. Inception doesn't buck the suggestion of linear causality the way that Memento or Dunkirk are deliberately designed to emphasize temporal contrast. It punctures the confines of classical linearity and strings networks of causal communication between disparate temporalities like a tin can telephone line stretched between treehouses. The hallway sequence is hardly a, quote, classical piece of storytelling, but it is still causal in construction. It is an example of post linear practice because it requires audiences to suspend their allegiance to the prerequisites of classical structure and endorse Nolan's new normal with an intellectual investment in his method. It is an example of hypertemporal because it represents a prioritization of time as the central motivating narrative force within its own cinematic context. Inception is one of the most instructive hypertemporal texts because it challenges itself to examine cinema's relationship to dreams by focusing on the way that they feel, a phenomenon defined by the omnipotent, compounding influence of time in the dream state, as opposed to how they look. Smoke machines, canted angles, and diminutive actors have long been the cliched signifiers of the lazy dream sequence. But designing a narrative to be reflective of an unconscious, subjective, temporal experience is the kind of storytelling approach that properly invokes the dream state in the Boonwellian sense. To once again quote from Thomas Elsesser, quote, a mind game film can encourage an audience to entertain hypotheses that turn out to be false or remain unproven at the end. They have to unwillingly submit to reshuffling, not only of the temporal sequence of events, 
but be prepared to expand mental space altogether, as well as share a world where linear causality is suspended and effects can generate their own causes, in a reversal of agency and power relations." Unquote. Now to construct a metaphor, we'll briefly discuss a non-Nolan film. If we picture the three chapters of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey as corresponding to the diameters of different vinyl record dimensions that represent the amount of chronology covered in the corresponding chapters, then the film's first chapter, The Dawn of Man, equals a 10-inch record. The film's second chapter, Jupiter Mission, is a 7-inch record. And the film's third chapter, Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite, is a 12-inch record. More accurately, Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite probably corresponds to an infinite-inch record, but for the purposes of this analogy, we'll keep our dimensions manageable. Now imagine the records stacked on top of each other. And consider that the narrative trajectory of the Sujet of 2001 A Space Odyssey travels from the outside edge of the 10-inch record through to the inner nexus of the 7-inch record, then reverses direction and travels back outward to the widest edge of the 12-inch record and even beyond. Now let's apply this metaphor to Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, another triptych film. Now Nolan stacks his records big to small, 12-inch on the bottom, 10-inch in the middle, 7-inch on top. His trick is that he doesn't arrange his records concentrically. He slides them around on top of each other while the needle is progressing, effectively shifting the relativity as the narrative progresses. He's effectively playing cinematic DJ, but instead of scratching the record by sliding the temporality back and forth, as he does in a film like Memento, he's actually shifting three different records under his needle while still allowing all of them to progress along their individual chronological durations. Nolan also possesses a particularly sharp needle, so when he presses down hard enough, it pierces right through the vinyl surface to the the next temporal level. As with Inception's juxtaposed dreams, Nolan is interested in creating correspondence between discrete temporal environments to help reevaluate and redefine the idea of narrative. It's ironic that Nolan, the militant champion of the old-school celluloid aesthetic, has fully embraced a radically progressive storytelling strategy for virtually his entire career. His visual approach is designed to emulate the perceptible grain structure and intricately curated compositions of his heroes Michael Mann and Stanley Kubrick, but his writing style and relationship with story mechanics has become more ambitious with each project. He usually allows narrative to emerge as the quote-unquote star of his films because he clearly believes in the savvy of modern audiences. For the first 57 minutes of Dunkirk, Nolan and his editor Lee Pace adhere to a regimented cutting pattern to condition the audience through the three temporalities, the mole, the sea, and the air. Mole, sea, air, mole, sea, air, and so on. But it's important to note that in spite of what would appear to be a predictable ladder of narrative elements, these individual quote-unquote scenes, here used to describe any sequence taking place in one timeline chronologically before cutting to another timeline, are not occurring in a causal structure relative to one another. This is to say that what happens quote-unquote next in Nolan's pattern is not chronologically next or even simultaneous relative to what has come before or what will occur after. It is next by necessity because Nolan has arranged it as such to deliver on its narrative potential. For example, scene two, which takes place within the sea timeline, in which the pleasure vessel, the Moonstone, prepares to cast off, actually occurs five days after scene one, which is in the mole timeline, in the chronological overview of the fabula. By scene four, which is within the mole timeline, we've jumped backward three days from the events of scene two, which is in the sea, and scene three, which is in the air, to catch up with the character's on the beach. Now this structure takes some getting used to and is not explicitly accessible for at least a few scenes. The first real indication as to the relativity of the timelines is when the squadron from the air timeline flies over the moonstone vessel in scene 6. Eagle-eyed viewers who catch this detail have their suspicions about Nolan's fractured temporality confirmed when the moonstone finally casts off from Dorset two scenes later. Now how can a boat that we just saw three planes fly over in open water 
two scenes ago still be in the harbor in Dorset? And the answer is because we're in the midst of what Thomas Elsesser would refer to as a quote-unquote retrocausal experiment. Once Nolan has conditioned us to accept his methodology and gotten us used to his cutting pattern, he breaks it just shy of the film's one-hour mark. From here, the quote-unquote distance between the timelines, temporally, geographically, and emotionally, closes exponentially, as clarified by film theorist David Bordwell. Quote, Nolan is interested in both the psychology of time and the problem of representing it in his artistic medium. He isn't only interested in shuffling chronology, I think he's particularly keen on exploring what the technique of cross-cutting does to story time. Unquote. All three timelines eventually collide at what I would refer to as the convergence or confluence zone, 73 minutes into the 106-minute film, or roughly two-thirds of the way through the film. The climactic battle scene, which involves events on land, sea, and air, plays out in a traditional causal chronological structure. Ferrier the Spitfire pilot targets an enemy aircraft during a mid-air confrontation, the air. The dogfight is then viewed from the deck of the Moonstone as the planes fly overhead, the sea. Ferrier successfully vanquishes the enemy aircraft and it spirals into a tailspin, crashing into the surf at the base of the mole, the mole, and so on. This convergence zone comprises 14 minutes and 50 seconds of sustained causal chronology before the narrative re-engages its temporal fracture for the final 16 minutes of the film's running time. Now, the possibilities of how to present a story like this are legion, but Nolan wants to level a commentary on narrative at least as much as he wants to construct a survival scenario. I cut together the individual, quote-unquote, shorts corresponding to the timelines, and they work fine individually, but... Devoid of narrative overlap and the dramatic potency generated from the retrocausality of temporal fracture, they're missing that spark inherent to Nolan's unique method. It could be argued that the bulk of Dunkirk functions as more of an intellectual exercise in structure as opposed to a satisfying drama delivery system, and for much of the film's running time, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with this assessment. Much of Nolan's career has been defined by accusations of a callous indifference toward the emotional lives of his characters. But the final moments of Dunkirk are as empirical of a justification for his approach as any scene in any film he has ever made. There's a distinct possibility that Nolan reverse-engineered the narrative structure of Dunkirk specifically so that it would accommodate a literal and figurative emotional quote-unquote landing and a symbolic emulation of the Spitfire aircraft on the titular beach as the film's emotional climax. Having re-edited the ending to prioritize chronological ordering, I can certainly confirm that the burning of the aircraft is far more dramatically potent as the penultimate shot of the film as Nolan intended. What he appears to be exploring here is the notion that satisfying drama is generated not from what information is being delivered, but by when it is delivered in the context of a given narrative. An analysis of the retrocausal implications of Dunkirk's structure would suggest that part of Nolan's intention is to use the currency of something that hasn't happened yet in terms of the sujet to assist him in the quote-unquote purchase of something that is happening now, like an investment in a speculative real estate venture requiring collateral. When we see the character who is referred to only as the shivering soldier acting in a calm and colloquial manner during the mole timeline, we experience a retrocausal epiphany because we have already seen the shell-shocked, subdued version earlier in the sujet. Nolan then hard cuts from the smiling and garrulous version of the soldier to the traumatized variant on the deck of the Moonstone two fabula days later, and the effect is complete. Similar employment of retrocausality is utilized to extraordinary dramatic effect in films like Arrival, Cloud Atlas, or Nolan's own Interstellar. The latter film's emotional throughline is even contingent on relativity as a plot device. A character spends mere hours in fabula time on the surface of a distant planet, but because of the gravitational pull from a nearby black hole, Earth's relative fabulatic equivalent is equal to decades. The very passage of time becomes the antagonist of that film. Woven into the fabric of the relationships between plot, screen time, story time, and chronology lies the code of durational equivalence that is narratively crucial but nearly impossible to qualify. Filmmakers like Christian Marclay, Stanley Kubrick, and Christopher Nolan attempt to reconcile these connections within a cinematic context. Their 
Their efforts are not always completely successful, but their aim is true and their ambition is estimable. Time is inescapable, so it must be harnessed. It seems clear to me that filmmakers like Christopher Nolan or Steven Soderbergh share a fundamental anxiety about time in the sense that they are inclined to use it not only as an omnipresent narrative device, but also commonly position it as the antagonist in their films. I don't believe that either filmmaker's anxiety about the forward march of time is necessarily a reflection of their fear of death, but Soderbergh and Nolan's fascination with time would seem to be an indication that they are frustrated by their inability to dominate it in life, so they endeavor to do so in cinema. To quote Thomas Elsesser, quote, providing a gap or space into which the viewer inserts or invests themselves is one of the most important aesthetic, cultural, and ideological functions narratives can perform. Discuss under such diverse headings as narrative comprehension, subject position, identification, viewer engagement, empathy, meaning-making. All this suggests that mind game films covertly or overtly pose important questions about the cognitive and cultural function of narrative today, and about the feasibility of alternating ordering systems, such as database narratives and other ways of world-making." A shift toward a normalization of the hypertemporal practice has emerged over the last 20 years, and the widespread audience embrace of it under this umbrella has led to a run on this type of film. Today we are privileged to a large enough sample set that we can properly identify the tenets of it. But the great irony of this recent paradigmatic trend towards temporal manipulation emerging as the preeminent instrument of cinematic storytelling is that the elemental ingredients for this kind of filmmaking have been with cinema since the beginning. Only recently has the intellectual sophistication of filmmakers and audiences found complementary unanimity. Films that choose to forgo introductory exposition and initiate their distinctive diegesis with an action or event that is already transpiring are said to begin, quote-unquote, in media res. Now, this is a Latin phrase meaning into the middle of things, and the practice is particularly common occurrence in the category of hypertemporal exercises. Indeed, all three of the Nolan films given a dedicated case study here, Memento, Inception, and Dunkirk, begin this way. Memento could even be described as beginning res media in, seeing as the opening shot of a hand shaking a developed Polaroid snapshot is played backward. Inception opens with a hard cut to the crashing of a wave against the beach and the reveal of a man splayed out on the shoreline. Of the three films, Dunkirk has the most jarring example of an in media res opening. Not only does the film hard cut to a shot of the back of six soldiers, it also cuts mid-movement. The soldiers appear to be in the process of standing up from a crouching position and we have just missed whatever startled them. Now there's nothing especially instructive to glean from this relatively common in media res practice until we compare it to the ways in which these three films end. There's an intentional stylistic bookending at work that is potentially illustrative of Nolan's disposition toward time. For our purposes we will define the manner in which these films end as duh media res. Now this terminology has yet to achieve a mainstream use of in narrative studies, but I believe the Latin translation is accurate, from the middle of things, or a film that terminates during an action. Dunkirk hard cuts to black off of the solemn face of the character Tommy as he looks up from his newspaper in the film's final shot. Inception aborts to black the moment that Cobb's telltale totem top begins to wobble on the table. Memento stops so short with an abrupt cut to black that Leonard barely has enough time to deliver his ironic summation when he says, now, where was I? I would argue that these three films don't, quote, begin, they simply start. Furthermore, none of them technically, quote, end, they just stop. What does this tell us about Nolan's relationship to the temporal personalities of these films? Simply that there are elliptical exercises on the front and the back ends. Because they don't begin, they just are. Because they don't end, they never aren't, in the ontological sense. Nolan, in canny defiance of time itself, appears to be shouting at the clock, you can't hit a moving target. If a film extends forward and backwards indefinitely into the elliptically infinitesimal, then it is not only hypertemporal, it is post-temporal. Time shall have no dominion if cinema can transcend it.
It's funny, uh, you know, you read things back that you've written potentially years ago. You you get far enough into it and you start to kind of lose yourself into it. And I oftentimes find myself thinking, this guy's this guy's making a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I I agree with this this guy. He's 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 got some points here. And then I realize like, oh great. You're just getting high on your own supply. I'll leave it at that. I hope you join us for the rest of the series in honor of Nolan's interest in experimental narrative and his penchant for the nonlinear. We decided to approach our series in kind, meaning that we will not be working our way through his filmography chronologically in terms of release dates. We'll be working our way through thematically. So first up, next week, we'll be exploring his Dark Knight trilogy, Batman Begins... The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. Then in the month of June, we'll be jumping backwards to the beginning of his filmography and exploring his first film, Following, his second film, Memento, his third film, Insomnia, and his fifth film, The Prestige. Then in July, we're going to block together Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk, and God willing, Tenet as part of our final episode. If it turns out that Tenet doesn't get released in theaters in July, then we will cover Inception, Interstellar, and Dunkirk, and we'll cover Tenet when we can. What can I say? The world is a twisted place nowadays, and we're just rolling with it and taking it one day at a time. If you're interested in this subject matter the way that I am, and you want to hear more, I'm going to tag this episode with a 15-minute epilogue. I will be using the audio from a video essay that I made for the aforementioned Thomas L. Sesser's aforementioned class about mind game films. The essay was entitled, Christopher Nolan's Postmodern Method, Incepting the Audience with Films About Filmmaking. And just as a quick editor's note, if you listen to the audio of this essay, you'll hear me reference the concept of productive pathology, but you won't be able to see the text of my on-screen citation giving credit to Elsesser for this concept. I just want to make sure Dr. Thomas Elsesser receives proper credit for this wonderfully alliterated and extremely useful concept that he spearheaded. Now you can hear the audio for that video essay at the end of this episode. If you're intrigued by it and want to see the real thing, then I will tag this episode with a link to view the video essay on the We Like Movies website. But if you just want to listen to the audio, know that the brief interludes where you're hearing a lot of Hans Zimmer's music are not pretentious asides. Uh, they're parts of the video essay where there's text on screen. <laughs> Give it a listen. If you're, if you're if you're into it, go check out the real video essay on the site. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't figured it out yet, we like movies, but we also like podcasting and want to continue doing it. If you like what you've heard, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our podcast on your preferred podcasting platform. Follow us on all the socials at WLM podcast. Drop us a line the old fashioned way, WLM podcast at gmail.com. If you want to contribute, help us keep the lights on at WLMHQ. You can always visit welikemovies.com and click on the donation page. The site is also where you can find podcast archives, listicles, rankings, articles, video essays like the one I just described, and other assorted WLM ephemera. Spread the word, tell your friends, and help us keep the conversation going. For Oscar Dahl, I'm Matt Knutson, and the degree of difficulty on this episode was three Brahms.
Christopher Nolan, perhaps more than any other 21st century filmmaker, is intellectually inclined toward genre experiments that are analytically engaged with the medium of filmmaking itself. His feature work spans 10 films over the last 20 years beginning with Following, which used a pulpy noir premise to examine the mechanics of duplicity. Memento expanded upon his narrative interests by subjectively investigating the productive pathology of amnesia. Insomnia completes an unofficial trilogy of daylight noir in which haunted protagonists victimize themselves, and Batman Begins finds Nolan grafting his noir sensibilities onto the next genre he would deconstruct. The Prestige represents a logical halfway point in Nolan's development, as it's principally concerned with misdirection. The Dark Knight is an urban allegory about moral relativism, smuggled in under the guise of a comic book movie. Inception represents the high watermark in Nolan's commitment to intellectually provocative mainstream cinema. And The Dark Knight Rises is about the struggle to redeem a metropolis locked in an existential crisis. Interstellar attempts to reconcile abstract emotional response with complex quantum physics, while Dunkirk finds Nolan redefining the war genre with a survival story defined by its fractured temporality. But for all of his groundbreaking efforts, it is really Inception that represents something of a creative mission statement for Nolan. It is singular in its comprehensive ability to effectively and cinematically literalize his philosophical interests in time, memory, and the artifice of filmmaking itself. At its core, Inception is about Christopher Nolan wrestling with the three epistemological tiers of the cinematic process. One, the filmmaker behind and within the apparatus, the camera, and by extension, the screen. Two, the apparatus itself, or the medium, as a means of information delivery or even ideological adjustment. And three, the audience themselves and how their perspective can be irreversibly altered by the inception inherent to viewing something that speaks to them emotionally. His best films are, in many ways, defined by a giddy, almost fetishistic celebration of the medium itself. How the story is told almost always takes precedence over what the story is about. To butcher an old Roger Ebert quote, how it's about what it's about is what the film is about. In this regard, Inception becomes something of a Rosetta Stone for Nolan's entire oeuvre. By tapping into the metaphor of the shared dream method as a stand-in for the cognitive crucible experienced by an audience in a movie theater, Nolan finds the perfect venue by which to examine his role, relationship, and responsibility to the medium and to the audience. Inception is not just a movie about watching movies. It's about every step in the process from script to screen to audience and then back to the filmmaker symbiotically. The interpretation of the central heist as a movie in the mind and the roles of the individual dream thieves as core crew members is as old as Inception itself. But if we examine the responsibilities of the team members relative to the goals of the mission, we get a better idea of how useful this postmodern reading of the film is in getting to the root of Nolan's intentions. Cobb, who shares his name with the antagonist of following, My name's Cobb. another well-dressed thief, is the extractor in the shared dream environment, or director in the filmmaking analogy. He is highly skilled and possessed of some radical notions that allow him to creatively improvise when the job calls for it. Referencing Cobb the director, Matthew Belinky writes, not only does he determine how he wants his target to feel, not only does he invent a story to inspire these feelings, but he also supervises the creation of an environment in which his story will unfold. Cobb is a natural leader and a team player, but still considers himself the smartest person on set. In this context, he is the consummate confidence man, echoing his namesake from following, the dueling magicians from the prestige, and even the Joker in the Dark Knight. Maria Bustias observes, Cobb takes the risk of revealing to Fisher that they're both in a dream 
That's like letting you know that you're watching a movie, a directorial aside, a lifting of the curtain. Subconscious security. In this regard, Nolan is drawing attention to one of his own favorite tricks, misdirection via candidacy, lying to the audience by distracting them with the truth. Nolan workshopped this method as the central conceit of the prestige, and it's one of the more impressive high-wire acts that film attempts. Nolan, through Cobb, invites the audience to examine the mechanics of the con he is attempting to pull, channeling Cobb's internal dialogue. Amresh Sinha observes, Instead of compelling the subject to follow my ideas, I must let him think he is following his own ideas, although they are actually, and secretly, mine. Underwriting Cobb's runaway production is Saito, the tourist of the dream heist, or the de facto executive. The character appears to be Inception's commentary on the necessary evil of a financier who insists on tagging along during principal photography. But Cobb's relationship with Saito is interesting in that he is eventually required to rescue and therefore redeem Saito. Matthew Belinky writes, I can't help Help but see Saito's injury and imprisonment in limbo as Nolan's little dig at meddling suits. He can't work without them, but they should sign the checks and keep their distance. Cobb and Saito come to a place of mutual respect and collaboration that likely echoes Nolan's relationship with Warner Brothers, his corporate home. Arthur the Point Man is, quite clearly, the film's producer. He is pragmatic, capable, consistently frustrated by Cobb's wild, unpredictable ambitions, and constantly trying to talk him out of things. But he is also detail-oriented, reliable with logistics, protective and mentoring toward the writer, while being dismissive and catty with the actor. That would bring us to Ariadne the Architect, explicitly the screenwriter of Cobb's big-budget fantasy. She's obviously a first-time writer, but she's good in the room and quick on her feet, as she is basically thrown into the deep end of this dream-sharing pool and forced to do rewrites on a particularly hectic set. She deals with the director's wild mood swings and the fact that he continues to insist on casting his ex-wife in a film she's completely wrong for. More on that in a moment. Eames the Forger is, of course, the actor in this context. He appears to be a natural in combat, on a snowmobile, or at mountain an actor who can actually do the things written on the back of his headshot. He's wry, charismatic, and is engaged and collaborative during script meetings. He's so right for the part that he not only comes up with the central thesis of the Inception's core conceit with one throwaway line. I right, will try this. Um, my father accepts that I want to create for myself, not follow in his footsteps. He's also casually philosophical when it appears that the production has melted down to abject failure. So that's it, then we failed. We're done. It's a shame, I really wanted to know what's going to happen in there. I swear we have this one. Of course, the writer requests an 11th hour crack at the script, and when she and Cobb spin an improvised fix on the third act, it is only Eames the actor who shepherds the emotional catharsis and bears witness to the climactic moment on set. That moment, of course, concerns Fisher, the mark, the audience, if you will. He is beguiled and incepted by the production, and though his ideology is adjusted without his consent, his emotional state and psychological well-being is actually improved by the violation. This is part of what makes Inception such a unique and exhilarating entry into the heist genre. The target is not being victimized or robbed. Amazingly enough, Fisher is an unwitting subject of an act of kindness, necessitated by a creative decision on the part of a team of visionaries. Maria Bustillos writes, Fisher's epiphany, however artificially induced, however staged, is strangely moving, beautiful, and sad. Note also that it comes to Fisher alone. Cobb doesn't see this redemption. He only has to have faith that it's happened. How sad it is that no director can ever really see into the heart of a viewer who is seeing and understanding his work for the first time. The Inception basically cons Fisher into believing a false premise that allows him to come to a resolution with his father he was never given in life. Movie audiences volunteer for this process every day, hoping to find catharsis or emotional resolution through art they are rarely afforded by reality. And even when it does occur, it almost never features such great lighting, kick-ass practical effects, 
effects or zero gravity. These of course come courtesy of Yusuf the chemist, who basically functions as the production's de facto cinematographer or all-purpose technician, modifying the gear, literally and figuratively driving the production, even hosting movie marathons for freebasing dream junkies in his creepy basement. And finally there's Maul, the Shade, who functions as Cobb's destructive muse, representing his insular artistic past and stifling his potential for future growth as a filmmaker. Only when he comes to accept that there is no future in allowing his relationship with Maul to define him as an artist can he finish his film. Maria Bustios observes, By the end, Cobb will have to choose, explicitly, between Maul and Fisher. This is a very exact analogy. Who are you doing this for? For your own vision, or for the audience? Christopher Nolan's work is often described as cold, cerebral, and obsessed with moral ambiguity, often at the expense of characterization or emotional accessibility. And while these reductions are interesting from a critical standpoint, they are somewhat inaccurate, as they could be argued as intentional symptoms of a storytelling style that aspires to be a deconstructive apparatus for examining narrative mechanics and cinematic technique. His common storytelling methodology involves selecting a variation on his preferred protagonist archetype, usually an impeccably tailored 30-something male whose master of his craft and devotion to his profession gives him little relief from his haunted existence, this protagonist will either fail as a result of his own moral or intellectual shortcomings, as in following, memento, or the prestige, or transcend by conquering his demons and discovering a deeper truth, as in Inception, The Dark Knight Rises, or Interstellar. Twenty and thirty-something Nolan was drawn to lone wolf protagonists, whose obsession and expertise defined and alienated them. Forty-something Nolan is drawn to vulnerable heroes who prioritize family, home, and finding peace. Transitional Nolan, the filmmaker who turned 40 during the making of Inception in 2010, projects himself into the character of Cobb, who is struggling to reconcile how good he is at his job and how deeply he is seduced by the creative potential of it with how much he just wants to return home to build sandcastles with his children. What distinguishes Nolan amongst his peers is not principally the critical acclaim, awards attention, or billions of dollars in revenue generated by his films, though that certainly makes it easier for him to secure the production resources necessary to meet the scope of his ambitious projects. But what makes him a standout auteur in the ranks of important filmmakers, whose work is distinctly eligible for academic analysis, is the consistency with which Nolan challenges the confines of the medium and uses a post-classical narrative approach to subvert audience expectation and keep them intellectually engaged. Nolan is uniquely interested in the interrogation and cross-examination of the filmmaking process, spilling the elements of traditional storytelling out on the table like so many puzzle pieces, examining the shapes, and reassembling them in a manner that philosophically comments on the nature of puzzles themselves. In an era in which so many filmmakers are being inaccurately branded as purveyors of a postmodern aesthetic, Christopher Nolan is one of the few who deserves to be considered a true master of the deconstructionist methodology. 